Chapter 12. The Woodcock Winter As the summer drew to a close, I found myself, to my delight, once more without a tutor. Mother had discovered that, as she so delicately put it, Margot and Peter were becoming too fond of one another. As the family was unanimous in its disapproval of Peter as a prospective relation by marriage, something obviously had to be done. Leslie's only contribution to the problem was to suggest shooting Peter, a plan that was, for some reason, greeted derisively. I thought it was a splendid idea, but I was in the minority. Larry's suggestion that the happy couple should be sent to live in Athens for a month in order, as he explained, to get it out of their systems, was quashed by Mother on the grounds of immorality. Eventually, Mother dispensed with Peter's services. He left hurriedly and furtively, and we had to cope with a tragic, tearful and wildly indignant Margot, who, dressed in her most flowing and gloomy clothing for the event, played her part magnificently. Mother soothed and uttered gentle platitudes, Larry gave Margot lectures on free love, and Leslie, for reasons best known to himself, decided to play the part of the outraged brother and kept appearing at intervals, brandishing a revolver and threatening to shoot Peter down like a dog if he set foot in the house again. In the midst of all this, Margot, tears trickling effectively down her face, made tragic gestures and told us her life was blighted. Spiro, who loved a good dramatic situation as well as anyone, spent his time weeping in sympathy with Margot and posting various friends of his along the docks to make sure that Peter did not attempt to get back onto the island. We all enjoyed ourselves very much. Just as the thing seemed to be dying a natural death and Margot was able to eat a whole meal without bursting into tears, she got a note from Peter saying he would return for her. Margot, rather panic-stricken by the idea, showed the note to Mother, and once more the family leapt with enthusiasm into the farce. Spiro doubled his guard on the docks, Leslie oiled his guns and practised on a large cardboard figure pinned to the front of the house, Larry went about alternatively urging Margot to disguise herself as a peasant and fly to Peter's arms, or to stop behaving like a Camille. Margot, insulted, locked herself in the attic and refused to see anyone except me, as I was the only member of the family who had not taken sides. She lay there, weeping copiously, and reading a volume of Tennyson. Occasionally she would break off to consume a large meal, which I carried up on a tray, with undiminished appetite. Margot stayed closeted in the attic for a week. She was eventually brought down from there by a situation which made a fitting climax to the whole affair. Leslie had discovered that several small items had been vanishing from the sea cow, and he suspected the fishermen who rode past the jetty at night. He decided that he would give the thieves something to think about, so he attached to his bedroom window three long-barrelled shotguns aiming down the hill at the jetty. By an ingenious arrangement of strings, he could fire one barrel after the other without even getting out of bed. The range was, of course, too far to do any damage, but the whistling of shot through the olive leaves and the splashing as it pattered into the sea would, he felt, act as a fairly good deterrent. So carried away was he by his own brilliance that he omitted to mention to anyone that he had constructed his burglar trap. We had all retired to our rooms and were variously occupied. The house was silent. Outside came the gentle whispering of crickets in the hot night air. Suddenly, there came a rapid series of colossal explosions that rocked the house and set all the dogs barking downstairs. I rushed out onto the landing where pandemonium reigned. 
The dogs had rushed upstairs in a body to join in the fun and were leaping about, yelping excitedly. Mother, looking wild and distraught, had rushed out of her bedroom in her voluminous nightie under the impression that Margot had committed suicide. Larry burst angrily from his room to find out what the, what the row was about, and Margot, under the impression that Peter had returned to claim her and was being slaughtered by Leslie, was fumbling at the lock on the attic door and screaming at the top of her voice. "'She's done something silly! She's done something silly!' wailed Mother, making frantic endeavours to get herself free from Whittle and Puke, who, thinking this was all a jolly nocturnal romp, had seized the end of her nightie and were tugging at it, growling ferociously. "'It's the limit! You can't even sleep in peace! This family's driving me mad!' bellowed Larry. "'Don't hurt him! Leave him alone, you cowards!' came Margot's voice, shrill and tearful, as she scrabbled wildly in an attempt to get the attic door opened. "'Burglars! Keep calm! It's only burglars!' yelled Leslie, opening his bedroom door. "'She's still alive! She's still alive! Get these dogs away! "'You brutes! How dare you shoot him! Let me out! Let me out!' "'Stop fussing! It's only burglars!' "'Animals and explosions all day and then bloody great twelve-gun salutes in the middle of the night. "'It's carrying eccentricity too far!' Eventually, Mother struggled up to the attic trailing Whittle and Puke from the hem of her night attire, and, white and shaking, threw open the door to find an equally white and shaking Margot. After a lot of confusion, we discovered what had happened, and what each of us had thought. Mother, trembling with shock, reprimanded Leslie severely. "'You mustn't do things like that, dear,' she pointed out. "'It's really stupid. If you fire your guns off, do at least let us know.' Yes, said Larry bitterly. Just give us a bit of warning, will you? Shout timber or something of the sort. I don't see how I can be expected to take burglars by surprise if I've got to shout out warnings to you all, said Leslie aggrievedly. Well, I'm damned if I should see why we should be taken by surprise too, said Larry. Well, ring a bell or something, dear, and please don't do that again. It's made me feel quite queer. But the episode got Margot out of the attic, which, as Mother said, was one mercy. In spite of being on nodding acquaintance with the family once again, Margot still preferred to nurse her broken heart in private, so she took to disappearing for long periods with only the dogs for company. She waited until the sudden, fierce Sirocco's of autumn had started before deciding that the ideal place for her to be alone was a small island situated in the bay opposite the house, about half a mile out. One day, when her desire for solitude became overwhelming, she borrowed the Bootle Bum Trinket, without my permission, piled the dogs into it, and set off to the island to lie in the sun and meditate on love. It was not until tea time and with the aid of my field glasses that I discovered where my boat and Margot had got to. Irately, and somewhat unwisely, I told Mother of Margot's whereabouts and pointed out that she had no business to borrow my boat without permission. Who, I asked acidly, was going to build me a new boat if the Bootle Bum Trinket was wrecked? By now, the Sirocco was howling around the house like a pack of wolves, and Mother, actuated by what I at first considered to be acute worry regarding the fate of the Bootle Bum Trinket, panted upstairs and hung out of the bedroom window, scanning the bay with the field glasses. Lugaretzia, sobbing and wringing her hands, hobbled up as well, and the two of them, trembling and anxious, kept chasing from window to window, peering out at the foam-flecked bay. Mother was all for sending someone out after Margot to rescue her, but there was no one available so all she could do was squat at the window with the glasses glued to her eyes while Lucarezia offered up prayers to St Spiridion and kept telling Mother a long and involved story about her uncle who had been drowned in just such a Sirocco, 
Fortunately, Mother could only understand about one word in seven of Lucarezia's tale. Eventually, it apparently dawned on Margot that she had better start for home before the Sirocco got any worse, and we saw her come down through the trees to where the bootle bum trinket bobbed and jerked at her moorings. But Margot's progress was slow, and, to say the least, curious. First, she fell down twice. Then she ended up on the shore about 50 yards away from the boat and wandered about in circles for some time, apparently looking for it. Eventually, attracted by barks from Roger, she stumbled along the shore and found the boat. Then she had great difficulty in persuading Whittle and Puke to get into it. They did not mind boating when the weather was calm, but they had never been in a rough sea and they had no intention of starting now. As soon as Whittle was safely installed in the boat, she would turn to catch Puke, and by the time she'd caught him, Whittle had leapt ashore again. This went on for some time. At last she managed to get them both in together, leapt in after them and rowed strenuously for some time before realising that she had not untied the boat. Mother watched her progress across the bay with bated breath. The brutal bum trinket, being low in the water, was not always visible, and whenever it disappeared behind a particularly large wave, Mother would stiffen anxiously, convinced that the boat had foundered with all hands. Then the brave orange and white blob would appear once more on the crest of a wave, and Mother would breathe again. The course Margot steered was peculiar, for the brutal bum trinket tacked to and fro across, across the bay in a haphazard fashion, occasionally even reappearing above the waves with her nose pointing towards Albania. Once or twice, Margot rose unsteadily to her feet and peered around the horizon, shading her eyes with her hand, and then she would sit down and start rowing once more. Eventually, when the boat had, more by accident than design, drifted within hailing distance, we all went down to the jetty and yelled instructions above the hiss and splash of the waves and the roar of the wind. Guided by our shouts, Margot pulled valiantly for the shore, hitting the jetty with such violence that she almost knocked Mother off into the sea. The dogs scrambled out and fled up the hill, obviously scared that we might make them undertake another trip with the same captain. When we'd helped Margot ashore, we discovered the reason for her unorthodox navigation. Having reached the island, she had draped herself out in the sun and fallen into a deep sleep to be woken by the noise of the wind. Having slept for the better part of three hours in the fierce sun, she found her eyes so puffy and swollen that she could hardly see out of them. The wind and spray had made them worse, and by the time she'd reached the jetty, she could hardly see at all. She was red and raw with sunburn, and her eyelids so puffed out that she looked like a particularly malevolent Mongolian pirate. Really, Margot, I sometimes wonder if you're quite right, said Mother, as she bathed Margot's eyes with cold tea. You do the most stupid things. Oh, rubbish, Mother, you do fuss, said Margot. It could have happened to anyone. But this incident seemed to cure her broken heart for she no longer took solitary walks, nor did she venture out in the boat again. She behaved once more as normally as it was possible for her to do. Winter came to the island gently as a rule. The sky was still clear, the sea blue and calm and the sun warm, but there would be an uncertainty in the air. The gold and scarlet leaves that littered the countryside in great drifts whispered and chuckled among themselves, or took experimental runs from place to place, rolling like coloured hoops among the trees. It was as if they were practising something, preparing for something, and they would discuss it excitedly in rustly voices as they crowded round the tree trunks. The birds, too, congregated in little groups, puffing out their feathers, twittering thoughtfully. The whole air was one of expectancy, like a vast audience waiting for the curtain to go up. Then, 
One morning, you threw back the shutters and looked down over the olive trees across the blue bay to the russet mountains of the mainland and became aware that winter had arrived, for each mountain peak would be wearing a tattered skullcap of snow. Now the air of expectancy grew almost hourly. In a few, in a few days, small white clouds started their winter parade, trooping across the sky, soft and chubby, long, languorous and unkempt, or small and crisp as feathers, and driving them before it, like an ill-assorted flock of sheep, would come the wind. This was warm at first, and came in gentle gusts, rubbing through the olive grove so that the leaves trembled and turned silver with excitement, rocking the cypresses so that they undulated gently, and stirring the dead leaves into gay, swirling little dances that died as suddenly as they began. Playfully, it ruffled the feathers on the sparrows' backs so that they shuddered and fluffed themselves, and it leapt without warning at the gulls so that they were stopped in mid-air and had to curve their white wings against it. Shutters started to bang, and doors chattered suddenly in their frames, but still the sun shone, the sea remained placid, and the mountains sat complacently, summer bronzed, wearing their splintered snow hats. For a week or so the wind played with the island, patting it, humming to itself among the bare branches. Then there was a lull, a few days' strange calm, suddenly, when you least expected it, the wind would be back. But it was a changed wind, a mad, hooting, bellowing wind that leapt down on the island and tried to blow it into the sea. The blue sky vanished as a cloak of fine grey cloud was thrown over the island. The sea turned a deep blue, almost black, and became crusted with foam. The cypress trees were whipped like dark pendulums against the sky, and the olives, so fossilised all summer, so still and witch-like, were infected with the madness of the wind and swayed, creaking on their misshapen sinewy trunks, their leaves hissing as they turned like mother-of-pearl from green to silver. This is what the dead leaves had whispered about. This is what they had practised for. Exultantly they rose into the air and danced, whirligigging about, dipping, swooping, falling exhausted when the wind tired of them and passed on. Rain followed the wind, but it was a warm rain that you could walk in and enjoy, great fat drops that rattled on the shutters, tapped on the vine leaves like drums and gurgled musically in the gutters. The rivers up in the Albanian mountains became swollen and showed white teeth in a snarl as they rushed down to the sea, tearing at their banks, grabbing the summer debris of sticks, logs, grass tussocks and other things and disgorging them into the bay so that the dark blue waters became patterned with great coiling veins of mud and other flotsam. Gradually, all these veins burst and the sea changed from blue to yellow-brown and then the wind tore at the surface, piling the water into ponderous waves like great tawny lions with white manes that stalked and leapt upon the shore. This was the shooting season. On the mainland, the great lake of Batrinto had a fringe of tinkling ice around its rim and its surface was patterned with flocks of wild duck. On the brown hills, damp and crumbling with rain, the hares, roe deer and wild boar gathered in the thickets to stamp and gnaw at the frozen ground, unearthing the bulbs and roots beneath. On the island, the swamps and pools had their wisps of snipe, probing the mushy earth with their long rubbery beaks humming like arrows as they flipped up from under your feet. In the olive groves, among the myrtles, the woodcock lurked, fat and ungainly, leaping away when disturbed with a tremendous purring of wings, looking like bundles of wind-blown autumn leaves. Leslie, of course, was in his element at this time, 
With a band of fellow enthusiasts, he made trips over to the mainland once a fortnight, returning with the great bristly carcass of wild boar, cloaks of blood-stained hares, and huge baskets brimming over with the iridescent carcasses of ducks. Dirty, unshaven, smelling strongly of gun oil and blood, Leslie would give us the details of the hunt, his eyes gleaming as he strode around the room, demonstrating where and how he had stood, where and how the boar had broken cover, the crash of the gun rolling and bouncing among the bare mountains, the thud of the bullet, and the skidding somersault that the boar took into the heather. He described it so vividly that we felt we'd been present at the hunt. Now he was the boar, testing the wind, shifting uneasily in the cane thicket, glaring under its bristling eyebrows, listening to the sound of the beaters and the dogs. Now he was one of the beaters, moving cautiously through waist-high undergrowth, looking from side to side, making the curious bubbling cry to drive the game from cover. Now, as the boar broke cover and started down the hill, snorting, he flung the imaginary gun to his shoulder and fired. The gun kicked realistically, and in the corner of the room, the boar somersaulted and rolled to his death. Mother thought little about Leslie's hunting trips until he brought the first wild boar back. Having surveyed the ponderous muscular body and the sharp tusks that lifted the upper lip into a snarl, she gasped faintly. Goodness, I never realised they were so big, she said. I do hope you'll be careful, dear. Nothing to worry about, said Leslie, unless they break cover right at your feet. Then it's a bit of a job, because if you miss, they're on you. Most dangerous, said Mother. I never realised they were so big. You might easily be injured or killed by one of these brutes, dear. No, no, Mother, it's perfectly safe unless they break right under your feet. I don't see why it should be dangerous even then, said Larry. Why not? asked Leslie. Well, if they charge you and you miss, why not just jump over them? Don't be ridiculous, said Leslie, grinning. The damn things stand about three foot of the shoulder and they're hellish fast. You haven't got time to jump over them. I really don't see why not, said Larry. After all, it would be no more difficult than jumping over a chair. Anyway, if you couldn't jump over them, why not vault over them? You do talk nonsense, Larry. You've never seen these things move. It would be impossible to vault or jump. Trouble with you hunting blokes is lack of imagination, said Larry critically. I supply magnificent ideas. All you have to do is try them out. But no, you condemn them out of hand. Well, you come on the next trip and demonstrate how to do it, suggested Leslie. I don't profess to being a hairy-chested man of action said Larry austerely. My place is in the realm of ideas, the brain work, as it were. I put my brain at your disposable for the formation of schemes and stratagems, and then you, the muscular ones, carry them out. Well, I'm not carrying that one out, said Leslie with conviction. It sounds most foolhardy, said Mother. Don't you do anything silly, dear, and Larry, stop putting dangerous ideas into his head. Larry was always full of ideas about things of which he had no experience. He advised me on the best way to study nature, Margot on clothes, Mother on how to manage the family and pay up her overdraft, and Leslie on shooting. He was perfectly safe, but he knew that none of us could retaliate by telling him the best way to write. Invariably, if any member of the family had a problem, Larry knew the best way to solve it. If anyone boasted of an achievement, Larry could never see what the fuss was about. The thing was perfectly easy to do, providing one, one used one's brain. It was due to this attitude of pomposity that he set the villa on fire.
Leslie had returned from a trip to the mainland, loaded with game and puffed up with pride. He had, he explained to all of us, pulled off his first left and right. He had to explain in detail, however, before we grasped the full glory of his action. Apparently, a left and right in hunting parlance means to shoot and kill two birds or animals in quick succession, first with your left barrel and then with your right. Standing in the great stone-flagged kitchen, lit by the red glow of the charcoal fires, he explained how the flock of ducks had come over in the wintry dawn, spread out across the sky. With a shrill whistle of wings, they'd swept overhead, and Leslie had picked out the leader, fired, turned his gun onto the second bird, and fired again with terrific speed, so that when he lowered his smoking barrels, the two ducks splashed into the lake almost as one. Gathered in the kitchen, the family listened spellbound to his graphic description. The broad wooden table was piled high with game. Mother and Margot were plucking a brace of ducks for dinner. I was examining the various species and making notes on them in my diary, which was rapidly becoming more blood-stained and feather-covered. And Larry was sitting on a chair, a neat, dead mallard in his lap, stroking its crisp wings and watching, as Leslie, up to the waist in an imaginary swamp for the third time, showed us how he achieved his left and a right. "'Very good, dear,' said Mother." when Leslie had described the scene for the fourth time. It must have been very difficult. I don't see why, said Larry. Leslie, who was just about to describe the whole thing over again, broke off and glared at him. Oh, you don't, he asked belligerently. And what do you know about it? You couldn't hit an olive tree at three paces, let alone a flying bird. My dear fellow, I'm not belittling you, said Larry in his most irritating and unctuous voice. I just don't see why it's considered to be so difficult to perform what seems to me a simple task. Simple? If you'd had any experience of shooting, you wouldn't call it simple. I don't see that it's necessary to have had shooting experience. It seems to me to be merely a matter of keeping a cool head and aiming reasonably straight. Don't be silly, said Les disgustedly. You always think the things other people do are simple. It's the penalty of being versatile, sighed Larry. Generally, they turn out to be ridiculously simple when I try them. That's why I can't see what you're making a fuss for over a perfectly ordinary piece of marksmanship. Ridiculously simple when you try them, repeated Leslie incredulously. I've never seen you carry out one of your suggestions yet. A gross slander, said Larry, nettled. I'm always ready to prove my ideas are right. All right, let's see you pull off a left and a right then. Certainly. You supply the gun and the victims, and I'll show you that it requires no ability whatsoever. It's a question of a mercurial mind that can weigh up the mathematics of the problem. Right, we'll go after Snipe down in the marsh tomorrow. You can get your mercurial mind to work on those. It gives me no pleasure to slaughter birds that have every appearance of having been stunted from birth, said Larry. But since my honour is at stake, I suppose they must be sacrificed. If you get one, you'll be lucky said Leslie with satisfaction. Really, you children do argue about the stupidest things, said Mother philosophically, wiping the feathers off her glasses. I agree with Les, said Margot unexpectedly. Larry's too fond of telling people how to do things and doing nothing himself. It'll do him good to be taught a lesson. I think it was jolly clever of Les to kill two birds with one stone or whatever it's called. Leslie, under the impression that Margot had misunderstood his feat, started on a new and more detailed recital of the episode. It had rained all night, so early next morning when we set off to see Larry perform his feat, the ground was moist and squelchy underfoot, and smelt as rich and fragrant as a plum cake. 
To honour the occasion, Larry had placed a large turkey feather in his tweed hat, and he looked like a small, portly and immensely dignified Robin Hood. He complained vigorously all the way down to the swamp in the valley where the snipe congregated. It was cold. It was extremely slippery. He didn't see why Leslie couldn't take his word for it without this ridiculous farce. His gun was heavy. There probably wouldn't be any game at all, for he couldn't see anything except a mentally defective penguin being out on a day like this. Coldly and relentlessly, we urged him down to the swamp, turning a deaf ear to all his arguments and protests. The swamp was really the level floor of a small valley, some ten acres of flat land which were cultivated during the spring and summer months. In the winter, it was allowed to run wild, and it became a forest of bamboos and grass, intersected by the brimming irrigation ditches. These ditches that crisscrossed about the swamp made hunting difficult, for most of them were too wide to jump, and you could not wade them, since they consisted of about six feet of liquid mud and four feet of dirty water. They were spanned, here and there, by narrow plank bridges, most of which were rickety and decayed, but which were the only means of getting about the swamp. Your time during a hunt was divided between looking for game and looking for the next bridge. We'd hardly crossed the first little bridge when three snipe purred up from under our feet and zoomed away, swinging from side to side as they, fl as they flew. Larry flung the gun to his shoulder and pulled the triggers excitedly. The hammers fell, but there was no sound. It would be an idea to uh, load it, said Leslie, with a certain quiet triumph. I thought you'd done that, Larry said bitterly. You're acting as the blasted gun bearer after all. I'd have got that pair if it hadn't been for your inefficiency. He loaded the gun and we moved slowly on through the bamboos. Ahead we could hear a pair of magpies crackling fiendishly whenever we moved. Larry muttered threats and curses on them for warning the game. They kept flying ahead of us, cackling loudly until Larry was thoroughly exasperated. He stopped at the head of a tiny bridge that sagged over a wide expanse of placid water. Can't we do something about those birds? he inquired heatedly. They'll scare everything for miles. Not the snipe, said Leslie. The snipe stick close until you almost walk on them. It seems quite futile to continue, said Larry. We might as well send a brass band ahead of us. He tucked the gun under his arm and stamped irritably onto the bridge. It was then that the accident occurred. He was in the middle of the groaning, shuddering plank when two snipe, which had been lying concealed in the long grass at the other end of the bridge, rocketed out of the grass and shot skywards. Larry, forgetting in his excitement his rather peculiar situation, shipped the gun to his shoulder and, balancing precariously on the swaying bridge, fired both barrels. The gun roared and kicked, the snipe flew away undamaged, and Larry, with a yell of fright, fell backwards into the irrigation ditch. Hold the gun above your head! Hold it above your head! roared Leslie. Don't stand up or you'll sink! screeched Margot. Sit still! But Larry, spread-eagled on his back, had only one idea, and that was to get out as quickly as possible. He sat up and then tried to get to his feet, using, to Leslie's anguish, the gun barrels as a support. He raised himself up, the liquid mud shuddered and boiled, the gun sank out of sight, and Larry disappeared up to his waist. Look what you've done to the gun, yelled Leslie furiously. You've choked the bloody barrels. Well, what the hell do you expect me to do? snarled Larry. Lie here and be sucked under. Give me a hand for heaven's sake. Get the gun out, said Leslie angrily. I refuse to save the gun if you don't save me, Larry yelled. Damn it, I'm not a seal. 
Get me out. If you give me the end of the gun, I can pull you out, you idiot, shouted Leslie. I can't reach you otherwise. Larry groped wildly under the surface for the gun and sank several inches before he retrieved it, clotted with black and evil-smelling mud. Oh, dear God, just look at it, moaned Leslie, wiping the mud off it with his handkerchief. Just look at it. Will you stop carrying on over that beastly weapon and get me out of here? asked Larry vitriolically. Or do you want me to sink beneath the mud like a sort of sportsman's shelly? Leslie handed him the ends of the barrels and we all heaved mightily. He seemed to make no impression whatsoever, except that when we stopped, exhausted, Larry sank a little deeper. The idea is to rescue me, he pointed out, panting, not deliver the coup de grace. Oh, stop yapping and try to heave yourself out, said Leslie. What do you think I've been doing for heaven's sake? I've ruptured myself in three places as it is. At last, after much effort, there came a prolonged belch from the mud, and Larry shot to the surface, and we hauled him up the bank. He stood there, covered with the black and stinking slush, looking like a chocolate statue that's come into contact with a blast furnace. He appeared to be melting as we approached. "'Are you all right?' asked Margot. Larry glared at her. "'I'm fine,' he said sarcastically. "'Simply fine. Never enjoyed myself more.' apart from a slight touch of pneumonia, a ricked back, and the fact that one of my shoes lies full fathoms five, I'm having a wonderful time. As he limped homewards, he poured scorn and wrath on our heads, and by the time we reached home he was convinced the whole thing had been a plot. As he entered the house, leaving a trail like a ploughed field, Mother uttered a gasp of horror. "'What have you been doing, dear?' she asked. "'Doing? What do you think I've been doing? I've been shooting.' But how did you get like that, dear? You're sopping. Did you fall in? Really, mother, you and Margot have such remarkable perspicacity. I sometimes wonder how you survive. I only asked, dear, said mother. Well, of course I fell in. What do you think I've been doing? You must change, dear, or you'll catch cold. I can manage, said Larry with dignity. I've had quite enough attempts on my life for one day. He refused all offers of assistance, collected a bottle of brandy from the larder, and retired to his room, where, on his instructions, Lugaretzia built a huge fire. He sat muffled up in bed, sneezing and consuming brandy. By lunchtime he sent down for another bottle, and at tea-time we could hear him singing lustily, interspersed with gigantic sneezes. At supper-time Lugaretzia had paddled upstairs with the third bottle, and Mother began to get worried. She sent Margot up to see if Larry was all right. There was a long silence, followed by Larry's voice raised in wrath and Margot's pleading plaintively. Mother, frowning, stumped upstairs to see what was happening, and Leslie and I followed her. In Larry's room, a fire roared in the grate, and Larry lay concealed under a towering pile of bedclothes. Margot, clasping a glass, stood despairingly by the bed. "'What's the matter with him?' asked Mother, advancing determinedly. "'He's drunk!' said Margot despairingly, and I can't get any sense out of him. I'm trying to get him to take his Epsom salts, otherwise he'll feel awful tomorrow, but he won't touch it. He keeps hiding under the bedclothes and saying I'm trying to poison him. Mother seized the glass from Margot's hand and strode to the bedside. Now, come on, come on, Larry, stop being a fool, she snapped briskly. Drink this down at once. The bedclothes heaved, and Larry's tousled head appeared from the depths. He peered blearily at Mother, and blinked thoughtfully to himself. "'You're a horrible old woman. I'm sure I've seen you somewhere before.' 
he remarked. And before Mother had recovered from the shock of this observation, he had sunk into a deep sleep. Well, said Mother aghast, he must have had a lot. Anyway, he's asleep now, so let's just build up the fire and leave him. He'll feel better in the morning. It was Margot who discovered, early the following morning, that a pile of glowing wood from the fire had slipped down between the boards of the room and set fire to the beam underneath. She came flying downstairs in her nightie, pale with emotion, and burst into Mother's room. The house is on fire! Get out! Get out! she yelled dramatically. Mother leapt out of bed with alacrity. Wake Jerry! Wake Jerry! she shouted, struggling, for some reason best known to herself, to get her corsets on over her nightie. Wake up! Wake up! Fire! Fire! screamed Margot at the top of her voice. Leslie and I tumbled out onto the landing. What's going on? demanded Leslie. Fire! screamed Margot in his ear. Larry is on fire! Mother appeared, looking decidedly eccentric, with her corsets done up crookedly over her nightie. Larry's on fire! Quick, save him! she screamed and rushed upstairs to the attic, closely followed by the rest of us. Larry's room was full of acrid smoke, which poured up from between the floorboards. Larry himself lay sleeping peacefully. Mother dashed over to the bed and shook him vigorously. Wake up, Larry, for heaven's sake, wake up! What's the matter? he asked, sitting up sleepily. The room's on fire! I'm not surprised, he said, lying down again. Ask Les to put it out. Pour something on it, shouted Les. Get something to pour on it. Margot, acting on these instructions, seized a half-empty brandy bottle and scattered the contents over a wide area of floor. The flames leapt up and crackled merrily. You fool, not brandy, yelled Leslie. Water, get some water. But Margot, overcome at her contribution to the Holocaust, burst into tears. Les, muttering wrathfully, hauled the bedclothes off the recumbent Larry and used them to smother the flames. Larry sat up indignantly. What the hell's going on? he demanded. The room's on fire, dear. Well, I don't see why I should freeze to death. Why tear all the bedclothes off? Really, the fuss you all make. It's quite simple to put out a fire. Oh, shut up, snapped Leslie, jumping up and down on the bedclothes. I've never known people for panicking like you all do, said Larry. It's simply a matter of keeping your head. Les has the worst of it under control. Now, if Jerry fetches the hatchet and you, Mother, and Margot fetch some water, we'll soon have it out. Eventually, while Larry lay in bed and directed operations, the rest of us managed to rip up the planks and put out the smouldering beam. It must have been smouldering throughout the night, for the beam, a 12-inch thick slab of olive wood, was charred halfway through. When, eventually, Lugaretzia appeared and started to clean up the mass of smouldering bedclothes, wood splinters, water and brandy, Larry lay back on the bed with a sigh. There you are, he pointed out, all done without fuss and panic. It's just a matter of keeping your head. I would like someone to bring me a cup of tea, please. I've got the most splitting headache. I'm not surprised. You were as tiddled as an owl last night, said Leslie. If you can't tell the difference between a high fever due to exposure and a drunken orgy, it's hardly fair to dispersch my character, Larry pointed out. Well, the fever's left you with a good hangover anyway, said Margot. It's not a hangover, said Larry with dignity. It's just the strain of being woken up at the crack of dawn by a hysterical pack of people and having to take control of a crisis. Fat lot of controlling you did, lying in bed, snorted Leslie. It's not the action that counts, it's the brainwork behind it, the quickness of wit, 
the ability to keep your head when all about you are losing theirs. If it hadn't been for me, you would probably all have been burnt in your beds. Thank you.